There is something that God has placed within every human being because we're not a product of evolution, and it's called the conscience and the ability to know what is right and what is wrong. Our Creator has created us with a built-in moral compass. The question is, how do we deal with that conscience? And really, before we get into that, we need to understand three things about the conscience. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans and the second chapter, Romans chapter 2. I'd like to share with you, I I, uh, think something I taught just to a Sunday school class many, many years ago on the conscience, a reconditioned conscience. If we, if we recondition something, what does that mean? Have you ever reconditioned a carburetor or uh, an alternator or something along those lines, a motor? I remember when I was probably 15, maybe 14, and I had a, a truck. It was a 67 Ford truck, and I was too young to drive it, but I, uh, I, I would uh, do body work on it, repaint it, and sell it. And, and I, I noticed it needed a new alternator. It wasn't recharging the battery. And so I went down to the little auto parts store, and I bought this kit. And I'll never forget how excited I was to take this alternator apart and put these brushes in and these diodes and springs and all this stuff. And, and when I got it all put back together, I, I installed it, and lo and behold, it charged the battery. And I had actually reconditioned that alternator. If you recondition something, it means it's not brand new, but it's been overhauled, and it's like new at least. Well, when it comes to your conscience, obviously there are some things in there. There's a condition it's found in. There is some emotional baggage even from the past that affects it. And, and you can't go and erase all that, but you can, I guess, overhaul it or recondition it. Webster defines reconditioning as changing, um, as cleaning, as uh, patching, as putting back in good condition by repairing somehow. And there's a biblical formula that tells us how we can have a reconditioned conscience. It's possible. We find here in Romans chapter 2 these words, beginning in verse 14. It says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Here we find a truth given to us about the conscience. It can either excuse you or it can accuse you. And we're going to be talking about how to recondition it if it's condemning us and accusing us. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you now for the scriptures and the privilege we have to assemble here today. And we thank you now for the opportunity to grow as Christian people, gain victories and move forward and accomplish more for our Savior. And we just pray now that you'd bless this time in thy word and make it profitable and help your people. And we'll thank you for it. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Have you ever stolen something that wasn't yours? I have. Have you ever lied in the past about something? Yep, I have. Have you ever cheated, perhaps, in the past? I have. 
That's how I got through kindergarten, by the way. I got, you know, just, that's how Albert got through kindergarten. But I, I got through the seventh grade, actually. We had this system. There was a guy named Johnny Rasmussen. He, uh, his name started with R. Mine started with S. And, of course, we were arranged alphabetically. So the A's and all that were over on this side of the room. By the time you go over this far side of the room, um, he was right at the front and I was right at the back. And so the teacher would have us exchange papers after quiz, and we'd grade each other's papers. And sometimes she'd say, pass it to the person in front of you, and his paper would come to me, and I'd help him out. And sometimes they'd pass to the person behind you, and, and vice versa. Mine would go to him, and I'd help him out. And I shouldn't be telling you that. Kids, forget you heard that. But if you've cheated, you know you've cheated. And uh, it's not right, but it's something that's in your past. You've sinned so that something bothers you. And that's called a conscience. And I don't believe we evolved. And that's one of the reasons I don't believe we evolved. Only God could have placed the conscience within his creation. We all have it. And our text here in Romans chapter 2 talks about it. It mentions in verse 14, For when the Gentiles, that means the unsaved, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, they just basically, every man for himself do what he wants, but it's saying they might not have the written law, as it were, but God has still wired them to know what it is. In verse 15, it mentions which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. There is something that God has placed within every human being because we're not a product of evolution, and it's called the conscience and the ability to know what is right and what is wrong. Our Creator has created us with a built-in moral compass. And it's funny, but you can, you can take a baby, and you can scold that baby for something, and maybe they're just a little baby, but they're acting ornery and arching the back and doing something, and, and you hold them up and you go, no, or naughty. And I'll tell you, the little face kind of twists up and the little lip begins to quiver and the little tears start squirting out and, and they know they've been naughty. They know they've misbehaved. Why? The conscience kicks in. They know they're being bad. There are some standards, there are some principles that God has placed within us and we know they're right and we know they're wrong. This, this inner judgment of right and wrong, this inner guide that approves or, or condemns us is called the conscience, our moral sense or guide. Years ago, there was a librarian, a librarian in Brooklyn who was shocked to come to work one morning and find this box sitting outside with 32 way overdue books in it and a note inside and a check or some cash at least that said, you know, I've had these books at my home for years. I, I, I know they're overdue and I was too embarrassed to bring them back and, and I'm so sorry. I just couldn't live with myself hanging on to them anymore. So please forgive me. Here's some money to, to pay for the fines, whatever else it might be. Please forgive me. But man knows when he's done wrong. Now, animals don't know when they've done wrong. Well, in a sense, cats and dogs, you know, you can scold them. But it's funny how in the animal world, they can, they can kill and they can maim and they can rip up and destroy and eat without conscience. You know, I remember years ago, our, our dog killed a fawn out at our, our, our farm and, and thought nothing of it. I've watched over the years our cats just you know, play with mice and, and uh, finally do them in. I tell, I haul out the window, quit playing with your food out there, you know. But uh, they don't have any conscience of, of, you know, playing with their food and finally killing it off. Or, or when you see a dead skunk in the middle of the road and, and crows and whatever else uh, pecking away at it. 
They have no conscience of what they're doing. And, and the Bible says in Romans 8 that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. It's a dog-eat-dog world. They don't know any better. But we're different. God has made us different. We have this moral compass. We deal with guilt. And, and it's a good thing we do. God has made it that way. God has built that in. Because imagine what this world would be like if there wasn't a conscience in the heart of man. You know, when Cain committed the very first murder, and I won't have you turn back there, but way back in Genesis 4, we know that he kills his brother, Abel. Now, at that time, there wasn't any Bible or nothing that we know of where God had said, thou shalt not kill. But after he murdered his brother, nobody had to tell him it was wrong. He knew it was wrong. He buried the evidence. And he had a bad attitude when God came to him and said, what did you do? In Genesis 4.9, the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, now, why did he smart off like that? Because there was guilt inside of him. And there was a conscience that was telling him he had done something wrong. He was under conviction. Imagine the murders in this world if there wasn't something called a conscience, if there was, if there was no remorse for that. And by the way, when the Holy Spirit is lifted off the earth during the tribulation period, it's going to be chaos. It's going to be a bloodbath. This world is going to get a little taste of, of what it's like to live without God. But imagine the murder in the world if there was no remorse. You know, when, when Adam and Eve bit into that fruit, the conscience was born. It was unnecessary before that time. Before, uh, they, didn't, they, didn't, they had a state of innocence. But after, after they bit into that fruit and they knew they were guilty... They went and they hid themselves. God has to go looking for them. In Genesis 3 and in verse number uh, 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now he has a conscience. Now a conscience is necessary. God had built into man at that moment this moral compass. Activated at the fall, and now man had it. And so back here in Romans chapter 2, Verse 15 says, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. We know what God's standard is. We know what righteousness is. In Proverbs 20 and in verse 27, the Bible says, the, the, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. God has put this conscience in man to keep him on track. So with sin now in the world, it's imperative because raw human nature without a conscience would be a very, very ugly thing. Not very nice to say the least. So there's this conscience that tells us what's, what's right, what's wrong, when we're doing right, when we're doing wrong. We find a story over in, in uh, I won't turn there, but in 2 Kings chapter 7, there's these four lepers. And the Syrians had, had besieged the uh, capital city of Samaria there. And they weren't letting anyone in and out. They were trying to starve them out, basically. These four lepers weren't welcome inside the city. They weren't welcome in the Syrians' camp. So they're just sitting outside the city wall, starving to death, basically, when all of a sudden they said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, I mean, if we go inside the walls, there's famine and death. If we go and surrender to the Syrian army, they'll kill us, but it'd be a quicker death. Why don't we just go and get it over with? So they get up, they walk into the, the camp of the Syrians, and they find the place empty. 
In fact, God had sent the sound of an invading army and scared the fire out of the Syrians and they had rushed out of town and, and all of a sudden uh, there's these empty tents with all this food and all this booty and loot and all this stuff in it. And boy, the, uh, the four lepers start eating big, bigger than they've ever eaten before. And they start carrying away some silver and gold and burying it and hiding it and, and having themselves a big old time in a party when all of a sudden one of them stops and realizes what they're doing, that people inside the city walls are starving And he made this statement. He said, we do not good. This isn't right. Uh, We're not doing the right thing here. You know, our conscience will keep us in check when we're not doing the right thing. It's our conscience that condemns us and accuses us of sin. I think we're all familiar with the story of Joseph being mistreated by his brothers and winding up in Egyptian slavery and in bondage and and, uh, rising to the top in in the world at that time, second only to the Pharaoh himself and and the famine in the land back in Israel and and, and the the brothers of Joseph coming into Egypt to get some food and and Joseph recognizing them, but they don't know him. And so he kind of gives them a a hard time. And uh, as he's given them this hard time, their minds turn back to something. In Genesis chapter 42, and you won't turn there, but in verse number 21, they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us or begged us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Now this had happened 20 years earlier. And what is the thing that comes to their mind when life gets rough? what we did to Joseph. Why? Their conscience was bothering them all those years. When David numbered the people, the Bible says in 2 Samuel 24.10, his heart smote him. That's his conscience. Ah, what did I do here? On the day of Pentecost, when the gospel was preached, and, and Peter and the others said, you with wicked hands have taken the Son of God and slain him. The Bible says in Acts 2.37, when they heard this, They were pricked in their hearts and they said, men and brethren, what should we do? What can we do now to atone for that, to make up for that? Their conscience was bothering them. By the way, it was that conscience that brought them to salvation. And God has placed the conscience in man to help him to bring bring him to salvation. Our Creator knew as, as free moral agents, we would need a conscience to recognize the fact that we are indeed sinners. And in 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. It all fits together here. Now, even after salvation, we can be haunted by our past, our sins, and our conscience, if you will, or even by present failures. So the question is, how do we deal with that conscience? And really, before we get into that, we need to understand three things about the conscience. First of all, let's look at what I call a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience. In Psalm 40 and in verse number 12, the psalmist says, For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. Have you ever felt so guilty you couldn't even look at somebody? Maybe toward God so guilty you couldn't even look up. You just, you look down. And he speaks here about the innumerable evils he had done and the regret he had for them. Look in John chapter 8, if you would. And let's take a look at a woman who had committed adultery, who was so ashamed she couldn't even look up, and how her conscience was bothering her, but how even the conscience of her accusers 
begin to bother them. I'm talking about the woman taken in adultery here that they dragged into Jesus Christ. They set him in the midst of her and said, this woman was caught in the very act. In John chapter 8 and in verse number 4, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? So they're talking pretty big at this point, saying, Lord, let's get some rocks and, and, and pummel this woman until she's dead. Let's stone her to death. Well, in verse number 6, this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Notice, Christ writes something on the ground. We don't know what it was. I've speculated that perhaps him knowing everything knew what these men themselves had been into. And so maybe he's writing on the ground their sins. And they're looking down at what he's writing. Go, oh, he knows about that. Oh, he knows about that. And, and one at a time, beginning with the eldest who had the most sense, down to the youngest, they walked away. Now, what was going on? Their conscience was smiting them. I mean, they weren't without sin. They weren't qualified to cast the first stone. They knew it. They had enough to say grace over. You know, imagine how self-righteous we would get if it were not for our conscience. I was talking to your lady this afternoon, and um, she said, it's my self-righteousness that keeps getting me into trouble. And we can get self-righteous. Any one of us be pharisaical and get indignant at somebody else and what they've done. These men were indignant about what this woman had done. But what had they done? And when it hit them, their conscience smote them. You know, we find the story back in the Old Testament of, of David lusting after Bathsheba and, and bringing him to his, her to his palace, committing adultery with her. She was married to Uriah. Now he has an issue there. She's expecting, and everybody's going to know, Uriah's off to war. Whose baby is this? So he, he plans and schemes to bring Uriah home, have him spend the night with his wife. But Uriah has too much honor while his fellow uh, soldiers are out there uh, tenting it and laying under the stars. He's not going to go stay in his own home. And so he sleeps at the, the threshold of the king's palace. And the next night, the king brings him in and tries to get him drunk and get him home. But he still has too much character to do that. And so he writes his own death warrant and, and puts it in Uriah's hand, who delivers his own death warrant. And he's placed at the forefront of the battle. And there he's killed by the Philistines and, or whatever group it was. And uh, he dies. And, and David says, that's too bad. You know, the sword slays one as well as the other. And he takes... Bathsheba. Nine months go by. He thinks that everything's been forgotten. It's all been swept under the carpet until Nathan the prophet comes in and, con and confronts him. He gives him this parable, this story of this uh, rich man who lived next door to this poor man. And the rich man had a visitor come to the house and needed food. And, and, and instead of slaying one of his own sheep, one of his flock, he takes the one lamb this guy next door has. Who's, it's like a, 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 a daughter to him. And he slays that lamb and he feeds his guests with that and, and Nathan doesn't even finish the story and David slams his fist on the table and he says that man needs to die Nathan says thou art the man 
And I think David got the point immediately. Oh, I'm the rich guy with lots of wives. Here's Uriah with one poor little lamb, as it were. I've stolen that one he had. But you know, he he was so indignant until it hit him. That man needs to die. Really, David? Huh? I mean, what about you? After all you've done. You know, sometimes it takes a wake-up call like that. It takes a, a rooster, like for Peter, to realize how self-righteous and how indignant we get. We find that his conscience smote him at that time. And by the way, Peter's conscience smote him when that rooster crowed. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Even old Judas. Turn back to Matthew chapter 27, if you would. A lost man, no less. Sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver and afterwards realized what he had done. Why? Because his conscience smote him. Matthew 27 and verse number 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Why? Conscience. Have you ever had to live with a a guilty conscience? I talk to a lot of people and they sorrow over the past. They regret over uh, abortions. They regret uh, the way they treated their parents, mistreated their parents, or they have been unfaithful to a spouse. I've talked to fellows who... who, uh, who killed somebody in war. And of course, it was in war, but uh, it, it didn't soften it any for him. I've talked to people in jail who committed murder and, and their conscience is beating them up. I talked to some folks and, and, and it, they're like they're continually looking over their shoulder, living that way over something they've done in the past. Remember what Herod did when, when uh, Jesus came on the scene working all these miracles? He said, it's John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was dead. And Herod had had him put to death. And Herod's conscience was beating him up so much that he thinks some crazy thing like, it's John the Baptist, he's come back to get me. There are many folks and they have skeletons in their closet, don't they? And and consciences, and and they're afraid they're going to be found out. You know, back in in Psalm 38, we read this in verse number 3. The psalmist spoke of his conscience beating him up. And he said, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. I just can't get over it. There is no rest in my bones. It robs me of sleep. I think of Darius back in the Old Testament who condemned Daniel to the lion's den. Really wasn't his idea. Dan, Daniel was perhaps the one present he could trust. Maybe the one friend he really had. But he got tricked into it. The Bible says in Daniel 6.18 that, that his sleep went from him that night. He couldn't sleep. Why? His conscience was bothering him. You know, I often think of how King Saul felt after he had the, uh, I think it was 85 priests of Nob put to death for something they weren't even guilty of. Because it's like he unravels at that point. I mean, he was out of control and spiraling. He was in a free fall before that. But boy, after he committed that, if you read between the lines there back there in 2 Samuel, I'm sure, I'm sure his conscience, the conscience of Saul was just eating him alive. You know, the, the ministry lends itself to, to uh, the confessions of people who have a lot of regret. 
and a lot of remorse and a lot of scars and, and many regret a, a past of promiscuity and maybe at the time it seemed pretty neat and to kids today and of all times really it's kind of like, well this is a game, you know, just see how far you can get with as many as you can and, and then afterwards that promiscuity catches up to them in life. They have studied sexual promiscuity and found out that it, it leaves scars and guilt and this generation now around has it in epidemic proportion. The conscience, it bothers us. We find a woman in Luke chapter 7 who is washing the feet of Jesus Christ with her tears. Tears of regret. She was a promiscuous woman. You know, there's a lot of examples found in the Bible of people who are hurting and sorrowing because of their conscience. We see, first of all, the guilty conscience. Secondly, we see the godless conscience. You know, in the first century with, with the citizens of Rome and, and Greece, it had gotten so bad, the debauchery was so unbelievable, it was absolutely no holds barred. Anything went. And, and people were, were promiscuous with absolutely anyone and had no conscience of it. Uh, men with boys and, and girls. And, and uh, I, I've seen a picture over in Europe of, of Alexander the Great on his wedding day and, and standing there amongst the wedding party wearing nothing but a cape. And that's actually history. I mean, a cape on his back. And you go, really? That's how low they had sunk. That's a godless conscience. They had no conscience anymore. Brother Creech, our missionary down in Latin America, he said that that coastal Caribbean area and, and, and the, the mindset in there is so raunchy. There's no morals. There's no clothing. It's a, a sex-saturated society. He said, you cannot believe how bad it's God. That's a godless conscience. By the way, it's getting that way in this country. It's, a, it's more amazing to me all the time how people dress. You know, as you go into airports and you see some gals and how they dress or, or out and about. I'll never forget in the first grade... I was out at recess and I, I, I ripped the back of my pants. And, and I'm telling you, I stood against the wall the rest of the day. I stayed in my den. I mean, I was, I, you know, that's the tender conscience of a kid. It's too bad it has to become defiled. But it does. I remember when I was, uh, I think, in about the first or second grade, there was a kid in our class who lived just across the alley called Johnny Christensen. And he was having a birthday party, and I forget what I was being punished for, um, but I couldn't go. as one of many I missed. And, and uh, anyway, I remember sneaking out across the alley and, and walking into Johnny Christensen's house, and his mom looked at me and, and said, is it okay with your mother if you're here? Mothers must just know, you know? <laughs> kind of this radar. And I went, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I played for a while, and all of a sudden there's a phone call, and it's my mom. She knew where to find me because Johnny's mom had called her and squealed on me, and I got caught. You know, it, it, it's sad that if that conscience is not kept in check, it can be lost. It can become ungodly. And, and we see so many things today. We have a, a, a political climate. I mean, we're lying. It's just no big thing anymore. We have had past presidents who did nothing but lie, and, and it became almost a running joke. The hypocrisy and so. You know, the Bible in 1 Timothy 4.2 speaks of the conscience being seared with a hot iron. Seared with a hot iron. Psst. Defiled and deadened. And by the way, that's risky business. You do not want a, a uh, godless conscience. Many years ago, there was a pirate by the name of Gibbs. 
No relation to David, thank you, thankfully. But uh, this Gibbs was the terror of the West Indies and, and South America. He was continually capturing other ships and looting them and plundering them and, and murdering everybody on board. And they finally caught up to him and brought him to trial in New York City and he was condemned and executed. But before he died, he confided in a, a, a friend and he said, you know, um, I'll never forget when I, I plundered and I murdered my very first ship. He said, I couldn't eat for days. He said, I couldn't sleep for nights. He said, it was hell inside of my heart. And I'm just quoting. He said, it ate me up. But he said, after years of flying under the black flag and, and, uh, and, and plundering all on board and murdering women and children, it didn't matter with me. He said, I could get done putting to death a whole boatload of, of innocent people and go back and sleep like a baby. His conscience had become deadened. You know, we get to the place to where we say, well, I've gone this far, you know, I might as well take it another step. And as we do that, we just keep deadening that conscience. And, and it's possible to get a godless conscience. Christ said in Matthew 6, if the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Speaking of that conscience, if that light has gotten dark, how great is that darkness? And that is the result of resisting a guilty conscience. It's like the nerve endings keep getting frayed and, and that's the warning signal until finally they're deadened. The nerve endings have become deadened. And the, the result is self-deception. Proverbs 16.25 says, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's somebody who has become self-deceived. In 2 Timothy 3.13, it speaks of evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Deceived and being deceived. There are those who have gotten worse and worse until now they are deceived. I think of Saul of Tarsus who kept going and putting Christians to death, dragging them into prison and so on and so forth. And if he had kept going, would he have gotten there? Paul said this later on in Acts 26, 9. He said, I, fairly, I verily thought in myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He thought he was doing the right thing dragging those Christians in and having him put to death. And he had gotten to the place where he was calling good evil and, and evil good. And that is a dangerous place to get to. That is where this nation has now gotten to. That is where Absalom got to, by the way. Absalom was so self-deceived that in his mind, he was the good guy. And his dad, David, the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, he was the bad guy. And, and, and so when, when David got run out of town, Absalom's telling his men, now he's deceitful, he better watch out, he's tricky, he's this. And he's describing himself. You ever notice that? He's actually describing his own wicked heart there. Turn to Titus chapter 1, if you would. It's possible to get all turned upside down in our thinking when the conscience has been defiled. And we are on our way at that time to a godless conscience. As a nation, we're almost there. In Titus chapter 1, notice verses 14 and 15. It says, Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. 
Notice it says to those that are defiled and unbelieving, it's, it's a free-for-all. It's open season. There's nothing pure anymore. Their mind and their conscience is defiled. In the days of Jeremiah, the prophet described it as getting to the place where they could not even blush anymore. That's where we are at as a nation. Turn, if you would, back to Ephesians chapter 4. It mentions this deadened, godless conscience. In Ephesians chapter 4, notice verse number 18. It says, Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness and greediness. Notice those words, being past feeling. During the French Revolution, there was this, uh, I think she was a barmaid at a tavern by the name of Madame Du Defont. She was kind of a, a well-known prostitute and card-playing gal and just a wicked gal. But she hung out with the men all the time playing cards in that tavern there. And one day in the middle of a card game, she dropped over dead of a heart attack. Cards went flying, head hit the table. Everybody looked kind of stunned for a moment. One guy reached over, grabbed her by the hair, lifted her up and said, She's dead. And they went on playing their card game. And another one after that. Another hand after that. Another hand after that. Can you imagine getting that hardened? That defiled? That godless? It's possible to lose all sense of, of care for our fellow man. It's possible to lose all sense of decency and, and morality. And I said all that to say this. If your conscience still bothers you, that's a good thing. <laughs> you want that. You don't want it to get that, de that defiled or that deadened or that godless. We see the guilty conscience. We see the godless conscience. But finally and quickly, let's take a look at the good conscience. This is what we want. If, if the conscience is still sensitive, there's hope. I had um, a brunch, I guess it was, week before last with a, a missionary I love dearly over in South Africa. And we were talking about his testimony of salvation. It's a very unusual one. But when he was being led to the Lord, uh, he, was, he, was, he was almost laughing. He was rejoicing. He was happy. It was weird. I mean, it, it, there weren't the tears. There wasn't the, you know, ooh, look. It was like, ooh. And, and he said he had already gone through all that other stuff. He said, I was hearing how to get me out of my sin. I don't know what he had done. He's never told me. But it so bothered him, he went looking for God. His conscience was bothering him. And he got gloriously saved. You say, well, pastor, I'm, I'm saved, but I, I still struggle with my conscience. And I said at the beginning, you can't undo those things that you've done in the past, but you can recondition the conscience. Paul, I believe, was haunted by the faces of those, those Christians he had put to death. And maybe really worked harder than anyone else. He said, I, out, I outworked them all. I labored more abundantly than them all because he was trying to make up for it. Maybe he saw that haunting face of Stephen and realized the potential of that man that he had put to death there in Acts chapter 7 when he snuffed him out. But he makes a comeback. In fact, look in Acts chapter 23. Paul here talks about his comeback and how he was uh, able to recondition his conscience. In Acts 23 and in verse 1, the Bible says, And Paul earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He said, My conscience is right. Look in Acts 24. 
In chapter 24 and in verse number 16, Paul says this, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. He was able to say that. I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, how do you do that? Well, look in Philippians chapter 3, and let's find out what Paul has to say about it. Apparently, it worked for him. Think about this. Paul was a murderer at one time, and yet he was able to move on. How did he do it? Well, in Philippians chapter 3, notice verse number uh, 13. He says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended or arrived. He says, I haven't arrived, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, he couldn't bring Stephen back to life, could he? But he could forget those things which are behind. It wouldn't do him any good to beat himself up about it, would it? So he must forget those things which are behind. And he says, now I reach forward towards things which are before. And Paul was able to finish strong. Though he was a murderer, he goes on and he writes half the books of the New Testament. By the way, it's been said that much of the Bible was written by three murderers. If you think about it, Moses was a murderer and he wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. David was a murderer. And yet he writes the longest book in the Bible, the Psalms. Paul was a murderer. And he writes nearly half the books of the New Testament. And if they could overcome, can't we? God says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Bible says in, in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Back in Psalm 32, I'll just read it for you. In verse number 1 of Psalm 32, the Bible says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So if you've been saved, realize your sins have been forgiven. Just submit to the truths of God's Word and the promises that we're looking at. In, uh, in Romans 13, in fact, verse number 5 says this, Wherefore, we must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Submit to God, not so you don't just get clobbered, but for conscience' sake, to have that clear conscience before the Lord. It's worth it. Now, the result of a good conscience, let me quickly give it to you. A few things here quickly. There's going to be, first of all, a feeling of security. A feeling of security. Look in 1 Peter chapter 3. Who doesn't want to feel secure? Who wants to go through life uh, off balance emotionally and mentally and spiritually? We all want to feel that security. Well, a clear conscience has something to do with it. In 1 Peter 3 and in verse number 16, it speaks of having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or behavior in Christ. So the world comes along and rags on you and says you've been brainwashed and all this stuff and you can blow it off. Why? You have a good conscience. Why? You are secure. If you do that, there's that feeling of security. Now, there's another benefit of a good conscience. And if you turn back to uh, 1 John chapter 3, the second benefit of a clear conscience is confidence. 
confidence. And I speak of it in a spiritual light here. In 1 John 3, verse 21, says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. If the conscience isn't beating us up, we have confidence. Have you ever done something or looked at something or been someplace or been into something you shouldn't? Do you have confidence at that time? I don't. I don't, just to be honest with you. There's a confidence when our conscience is clear. And then finally, look in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There is a discernment when we have a clear conscience. Remember this little cliche. When the conscience is clear, the vision is pure. That is so wise. I didn't come up with it. But when the conscience is pure, the vision is clear. You can have the mind of Christ. You can make wise decisions. Notice in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse number 9, it mentions holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. You actually know what you're supposed to do. It's not a mystery anymore. You hold that mystery of faith with a pure conscience. Now, turn back to chapter 1 here in 1 Timothy and we'll wrap this up with this one verse. Here's the ultimate goal. 1 Timothy 1 and in verse number 5 says, Now the end of the commandment is charity. Out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. That's what we're steering toward. That's what we're driving at. That's what we want. The end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. It is possible to let God recondition our conscience. By God's grace, we allow Him to do that. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.